Welcome, everyone, to the Our Strange Skies podcast. I am your host, Rob Christofferson. 1967 was a unique year for Canada. While the United States was embroiled in its own flap that saw the Ohio Valley play host to a myriad of strange activity, the men in black run amok on UFO witnesses, and the government shunt off its UFO program to the University of Colorado, Canada's flap was a quiet affair, but a predicted one. Quote, in the spring of 1967, the late Dr. Alavo T. Fontes of Rio de Janeiro, an intensely interested student of the UFO mystery, predicted the fall of that year would record more UFO sightings than any period in the 20-year history of the phenomena. Asked on what basis he made this prediction, he explained that he and other researchers had noticed that UFO waves occurred every 26 months. In addition, he had made the personal observation there was a peak period every five years, and according to his calculations, the two cycles would merge late in 1967. Some weeks later, when Dr. Fontes was visited by Jim and Coral Lorenzen of the Aerial Phenomena Research Organization, the three of them discussed his forecast and tried to select the areas where activity would be most pronounced. Because Canada and England always had their share of visits, but so far not in any unusual number, they picked these two countries as the probable areas of most noticeable activity. Canadian UFO report dubbed 1967 the year we were invaded without knowing it. In this episode, we will explore the UFO activity that occurred in 1967, beyond the big two cases, the you know, Falcon Lake incident and the Shag Harbor incident. Uh, to the corners of the country where the UFOs took an interest, and um, they are very rural indeed. What makes this Canadian flap unique and silent is how tucked away it was. For the chroniclers of Canadian UFO report, their first trip was to Caribou Country in British Columbia in the small town of Lone Butte. For Brian Grattan and his wife Pat, operators of the Big G Guest Ranch, the UFOs first appeared that summer. To the representatives of Canadian UFO Report, Brian was warm and open to talking, as long as they weren't about to suggest that what he had seen was not real. Quote, There were several scattered things that happened, so many in fact, that I can't sort them out anymore. But there were three incidents in particular that I do remember, and one of them was the very first sighting we had that summer. I remember the time distinctly. It was the 11th of July in the evening, and I was with Sean Brock, a wrangler from Texas, when I saw a peculiar red light over Taylor Lake. I asked Sean what he thought it was, and he didn't know, so we went over to the lake to have a better look. Well, there were five of those things there. Four smallish ones in a neat rectangle, and a larger one in front. The lights were red with a bit of green in them, and they were making a loud hum, as if they were charging up. It was in a low frequency of about 400 megacycles, sounding like the key of F. It was so loud, it was uncanny. The men stood there on the pier watching these objects. The minutes passed without notice until the sixth object appeared. 
It was moving so fast we couldn't make out all the details, but it had a red light on the top, which I think was revolving. And the rim was lit up, and it may have been revolving, too. Anyway, it came down at a terrific speed, went right between the other lights, then shot up out of sight. How it missed diving into the lake, I don't know. Brian and Sean had the distinct impression that this was a type of scout ship serving the others that were floating above the lake. It must have given them some kind of signal, because pretty soon after they disappeared, they all shot off in different directions. Strange red lights would be a continued presence on the ranch, one such sighting having occurred shortly after ranch hand Billy O'Neill went to bed. I called Billy, and he was out of the bunkhouse in about six seconds, but by that time it had climbed up and looked just like a very bright star. That's how fast they can travel. On one Saturday night, the red lights took an interest in the local dance hall until a crowd started to shine their flashlights at it, which caused it to take off. Later on in August, Brian remembers a sighting that some guests had. There were two couples from Oregon staying with us at the time, and we had been telling them about our UFOs, but they were pretty skeptical and just laughed. Then on this particular evening, some of the other guests were sitting outside when one of the ladies po there pointed to a bright light in the sky and asked what it was. Someone said it was Venus. In that case, she said, Venus is moving. Well, that light was moving all right. It came right on down and hovered for a while. It was about the size of a DC-8 and lit the whole place up. The two men from Oregon came out just then and were just as amazed as we were. They called to their wives and they came out and stared like the rest of us. Then the light went across the highway and settled behind a clump of trees three or four miles away. We couldn't see the light itself uh, after that, but everything around it stood out plain as day. Then, something remarkable happened. That thing started a dry electric storm that lasted all night. Lightning flashes around it, yet the sky remained absolutely clear. We kept an eye on it from about 9 o'clock to 4.15 the next morning, then somehow it disappeared. As the sky started to brighten, the aura of light just wasn't there anymore. After a while, I had some of the men go over to see if it had left any traces, but there was nothing. There wasn't a mark or a sign of burning anywhere. Whatever they are, these things operate in a highly sophisticated way. Most of the time, though, it's certainly not always the case. They give the impression they don't want to be seen. Sometimes those lights stop dead in the sky and look exactly like a star. They even twinkle like one and have the same colors. Eventually, the sightings would expand to include metallic-looking objects as well, seen by guests and by Brian himself. The most dramatic sighting of an object occurred on February 7th or 8th, 1968. I was having a shower when it happened. We operate on diesel power at the ranch, so when the water suddenly stopped running, I put on my dressing gown and slippers, grabbed a pocket flashlight, and went out to the diesel shed to check on the pump. It was just a small difficulty, so I was only in there a minute or two. Now, the entrance of the shed looks out directly toward the corral, where we keep the calves, 
and as I started to leave, I noticed a dim light moving above the corral. My small flashlight wasn't any help, but there was just enough light to see what the thing looked like. It was disc-shaped, I'd say about 28 feet in diameter, with a dome on top and a dim light on top of that. I couldn't tell whether the rim was lighted or whether it was reflecting the light on top, but it was a little brighter than the rest of the object and seemed to be revolving. Around the base of the dome, there was more faint light coming from what looked like three or four windows. I couldn't see anything inside. Brian walked into the corral, sloshing in the mud in the unusually warm winter air. He stood directly underneath the object. It was about 40 feet up, moving slowly along with a wobbling motion, and underneath it I could see three equally spaced markings pointing toward the center. Brian picked up his flashlight and shone it at the object above. It didn't seem to notice me at all. It just kept slowly following the calves across the corral as if it was studying them. And all the time it was making a low rhythmic noise like an IBM computer. The animals in the corral were calm, unbothered by the object. It was as if it was just observing them, like a person at a zoo. It eventually departed, wobbling away slowly, as if someone was moseying away without a care in the world. On August 26, 1967, at around 10 p.m., the red lights paid a visit to the community of McLeese Lake. The object was described as blood red, the size of a soccer ball, traveling from the south over newly installed power lines near Peace River. It didn't seem to be in a hurry, and it stayed right over those lines as if it were studying them, said Mrs. Alfred Beck. It was pulsating from dull red to bright red, and it was moving so slowly, there was plenty of time for many of us to see it. We watched it for three or four minutes. I turned off my washing machine to see if I could hear anything, but it wasn't making a sound, at least as far as I could tell. Details of the object were hard to make out due to its luminosity, but she claimed that a dark form could be seen underneath it all. This particular UFO had another witness, Jerome Olson, who operated a nearby chinchilla farm with his wife and son. Through a pair of binoculars, Jerome could see a greenish spot in the center of the object. Coincidentally, Brian Grattan recalled green within the color of the red lights he saw. Quote, in a fixed position, those lights are greenish-red, but when they move, they were completely red. Another resident of McLeese Lake, Barbara Began, was inspired to purchase a telescope after her sighting over the power cables. She was so intensely interested that she kept a diary of sightings in the area. Quote, Her diary of events showed that the red ball was not the first UFO observed at McLeese Lake during that eventful summer. At 8 p.m. on August 2nd, two weeks before, the Beck and Began children, and one or two others, making a total of about nine, saw a cigar-shaped object appear above Sheridan Hill to the north and head swiftly southward. Although the sun had not quite set, the children had the impression that the bright silvery look of the object was caused by self-illumination. An aircraft seen at approximately the same place and time the next evening appeared shadowy by comparison. They said the object had no protrusions, 
made no noise they could hear and was much larger than any aircraft they had seen in the area. Mrs. Beggin's notebook went on to show that early in the morning after the Red Ball incident, something else made a mysterious appearance over McLeese Lake, this time much higher. Outside to get a breath of fresh air in the oppressively closed night, she noticed an unusually bright star she could not identify. As she studied it, she saw what appeared to be a satellite moving up from the south. But as the satellite approached the star, it suddenly stopped, and the star took up the flight until it disappeared in the north. Fascinated, Mrs. Beggin went across the road to awaken her friend, Mrs. Beck, and with marvelous determination, they watched the now stationary satellite for another two hours, but the light of dawn came without any more action being noted. According to Mrs. Beggin's notes, glowing red balls were seen over McLeese Lake on two occasions after that. Then, in full daylight, on November 25th, the Beck and Beggin children saw another extraordinary aerial object. In the words of Lynn Beck, then 13, it was like a flying cowboy hat changing from brown to red as it traveled eastward across the sky. The youngsters joked about a cowboy being bucked too hard at a rodeo and losing his hat, but their earnest description left little doubt that the caribou skies had once again received a visitor from space. South of the Grattan's Ranch is Green Lake, which was the location of a sighting on October 30th, 1967. At a lodge owned and operated by Mr. and Miss Ernest Hills, saw something from their bedroom window as they were retiring for the night. From our bedroom upstairs, there is a wonderful view south across the lake, recalled Shirley Hills. On that particular night, there wasn't much to see as it was very cloudy and dark, but I was looking out when I noticed these, this odd red glow appear over the hill on the other side. It was growing brighter and shining off the clouds when I saw two red lights come up over the hill and then another, much larger, move up between them. Then, two more small ones appeared. So there was this immense red light with four little ones, two on each side, in perfect formation around it. I had never seen a UFO before, but somehow I knew right away, this is it. The object started to move across the lake in their direction, and it was quickly becoming clear that it was going to run right into their lodge. Joined by their son Robin, they watched as the object veered away from their lodge and straight toward their neighbors, the Gammies. Shirley picked up the phone and called Bert Gammy of the Flying U Ranch. As soon as Shirley Hills called, I just dropped the phone, rushed outside, and stared. I thought it was going to hit us. They too watched this object and its satellite objects veered, uh, veer away from their lodge, shooting off to the southwest. That thing was obviously looking for a place to land, but its speed was absolutely unbelievable, said Ernest Hills. First it would shoot off to one side, then back again, then up and down and so on, but moving so fast it was impossible for the eye to follow. It seemed to be in several different spots all at once. Then suddenly, it stopped, and that was it. It had found its spot. When it comes to the description of this craft, the Hills claimed it was as big as an office building. Hovering momentarily after veering off, two horizontal lines running across its face could be seen, like rows of windows. 
The small red lights remained with the object for a brief period of time before shooting off in separate directions. After a while, those things started coming back. First of all, a beam of light would come out of the big light. Then one of those red balls would come sailing into view and shoot right down it. We weren't sure if the little lights actually entered the big one, but Bert Gammy next door said he could see them going right in. After observing the object for some time, the hills each climbed into their bed and watched the object hover until they fell asleep. The investigators from Canadian UFO Report then approached Herman Sten, a maintenance worker of heavy equipment. At first hesitant, Herman eventually confided in his interviewers of his experience. I don't remember the exact date, but I do remember it was a Friday. I was driving home from work about 6 o'clock, and at that time on a Friday, there should have been lots of traffic on the highway. But this time, there was hardly any. Soon after I left Lac La Hache, I noticed something in the air away ahead of me to the right. It looked like a blinking light at first, but it wasn't moving very fast, so I thought it must be a helicopter on some kind of exercise, and I kept my eye on it. Near a small lake, he was able to get a really good look at it. It was hovering about 200 feet above the lake, and I could see the light wasn't blinking at all. It was revolving around some large dark thing that looked like two plates pressed together, one upside down on top of the other. On top was a dome-shaped piece, and on top of that was a steady red light, not very bright. The whole thing must have been more than 100 feet wide. I thought something must have happened out on the lake, and this was an air rescue operation. Then I began to wonder, because all at once the thing flew across the highway right in front of me and hovered over a small hill on the other side. A moment later, I knew for sure something funny was going on. The object started to come down among some trees on the hill, and when I saw the light flashing around on those trees, I figured it was time to get away from there. Herman continued on, only stopping a few miles down the road, to look back at the object as it was climbing in a sweeping curve toward the west. Once home, he looked again for the object and saw a brief light in the sky before it disappeared in the darkness. The investigators of this flap give space for the Tossie Begay alien carjacking incident, believing that the night that Herman Sten saw his strange craft may have been the same night that a strange craft and its humanoid stopped two Navajo youths, Guy Tossie and Will Begay, on the road. They also claim that this area of Idaho is well within caribou country. On November 2nd, 1967, Guy and Will were driving on Highway 26 just outside the town of Reary, Idaho. They were suddenly blinded by a flash of light. Will tried to apply the brakes, but the car just stopped on its own. A small UFO with flashing orange and green lights around its center and with a dome atop it hovered over their car. The dome was transparent enough that two figures could be seen. Suddenly... The dome swung open, and one of the creatures floated slowly toward the ground. This is from the NICAP report, quote, His height was a little over three feet. His face had a rough look, like scars, deep scars, as one of the Indians said. He had large, high ears, 
His eyes were round, and his mouth was a slit with very thin lips, or none at all. No nose could be seen in the roughness of the face. The creature approached the car, opened the driver's side door, and climbed into the cab, pushing Will Begay into Guy Tossi. The being then drove the car for a brief period of time into a field before it stopped. Or maybe the UFO pulled the vehicle there. Guy quickly hopped out and ran to a nearby farmer's house, where the story spilled out of his mouth. Wilbegay sat in fear in the car as the being tried to interact with him in, quote, high, rapid sounds like a bird, until he was joined by the other humanoid. The two strange beings then returned to the UFO, which, with a flame-like light glowing from the bottom, climbed off into the night, end quote. There were other UFOs reported that night in the Riri area, including one from a man driving home who claimed to have almost the same experience that Guy and Will did, except he never let him in the cab of his truck. And Mrs. Quinn claimed to see a low-flying orange light rotating near some cows. For Manitoba, UFO activity began even earlier. On May 26, 1967, Stan Wolwiak and Peter Charn of Winnipeg saw a cigar-shaped object trailing through the night sky. From his kitchen window, Stan saw the object and promptly ran outside alongside his wife. The object was approximately 100 feet long, 20 feet in diameter, with a 15-degree bend in the center. Both Stan and Peter lived near the Winnipeg International Airport and ruled out conventional aircraft as an explanation. Five days later, Mrs. Wayne Inkpen of Biagisor, Manitoba, I apologize for totally butchering that, watched a strange light at 11.30 p.m. approach her farm. Assuming it to be a truck at a fair distance off, she was startled when she noticed that the object was airborne. She was so fearful that she ran back into her home without looking back. The next morning, her husband went out into the field where the object had been hovering and discovered a 25-foot circular area of smoldering soil. Quote, Investigation revealed that the fire had not been there the previous day, and no explanation could be given as to why it was there that morning. Further examination revealed a higher-than-normal reading of radiation on a Geiger counter. On July 6th, an Air Canada DC-9 Vanguard plane took off from Winnipeg, Manitoba, heading east. Air traffic control noticed a strange return on their radar, flying close to the plane. The object, which the plane spotted, accelerated to over 4,000 miles per hour before it disappeared near the town of Vivian. Later that evening, a radar operator in Kenora, Ontario, noticed an unidentified target following another Air Canada plane. The next night, another object was tracked on radar following a plane in Manitoba. July 26th, several residents of Moose Lake fearfully watched an object move slowly and silently over the community at around 3.30 a.m. It lazily drifted down to approximately 500 feet in the air before it suddenly vanished. Its rays of light, which were green, red, yellow, and white, were said to have illuminated the lake entirely. On October 22nd, 
A formation of five lights was seen over Charleswood, a suburb of Winnipeg. At one point, four of the five lights swooped down close to the ground. They were a brilliant red in color, similar to the lights that had been seen in Caribou Country all summer and fall long. They were seen again the same night over Carmen, where two doctors, a newspaper editor, and six citizens watched them. In Alberta, on May 7th at around 2 a.m., Rick Banyard, 17, and four others watched and followed a spherical object with a spinning top and bottom and with red and green lights for four hours in Edmonton, Alberta, in the Mount Pleasant Cemetery. As it hovered at about 200 feet, a light beam came from the bottom of the object, illuminating the ground. They heard a muffled whistling noise and then a screaming noise like a jet engine starting up. All its lights went out, and the object took off in a flurry of explosive sounds. Black streaks were later found on the charred road surface. On July 3rd, Warren Smith and two companions were prospecting near Nanton when a disc-shaped craft, 25 feet in diameter, approached from the east. One of his companions noted, quote, It was traveling towards us gradually losing altitude passed in front of us, and as it passed slightly out of view behind some trees, it then reappeared and hovered in the open sky, and something of a much smaller size fell from the craft. It traveled toward us, gradually losing altitude, and at a distance of not more than half a mile, it hovered for a moment, at which time some object fell from the craft. The fallen object was possibly one hundredth of the size of the parent craft, at treetop level, the craft disappeared from sight. I am not sure at this point whether it became invisible or dissolved, or merely sped out of sight at such a great speed that it was hard for the eye to follow. At any rate, it was moving away from us at a great speed, and it disappeared from sight. He was able to take two photographs of it before it vanished from sight. The photos were described as remarkably impressive. On July 17th, quote, two huge fireballs looking like hurricane lamps were seen by Mrs. M. M. McPhail over Winnipeg at 10.55 p.m. The two lights hovered in the south for five minutes, and one proceeded to discharge a smaller light, which fell to the earth. The two objects then veered off to the southwest and disappeared from view entirely. A number of similar reports came from England, France, and Italy the previous day, end quote. On August 5th, farmer Edgar Schickel of Duhamel found several circular imprints on his property for which he could not explain. They ranged in size from 31 to 35 feet in diameter and were bounded by an impression roughly six inches wide. Agriculturalists were unable to find the cause. The rings were situated on a piece of sloping ground, and APRO investigator W.K. Allen suggested the elliptical shape was indicative of a circular object producing it with an anti-gravity field. Allen felt that the indentations in the ground would have required a mass over eight tons. Truck tire tracks on the field crushed the grass, but did not leave an indentation. The alleged object cut through a pile of cow dung and crushed a willow fence in two different areas. One month later, on September 5th, Evan Evanson of Tabor, Alberta, was driving when he noticed 
that his truck engine was running hot and pulled over to the side of the road. He sat in his truck, waiting for it to cool, listening to the radio, when he noted a green-colored object that looked like, quote, two flattened bells, one above the other. The music on the radio was suddenly replaced by a persistent beeping sound. The UFO promptly disappeared, leaving the boy completely terrified. On two different occasions, Russell Hill, a forestry worker operating a lookout at Raspberry Ridge, some 40 miles southwest of Calgary, was visited by UFOs. The first, on September 18th, occurred at 1 a.m. It started with a strange throbbing sound and was followed by an intense light that bathed his cabin in green. The light changed to a brilliant white as he failed to radio a nearby station. The object suddenly departed upward and out of sight. On October 7th, Hill was visited again by the green light from the south this time. This time he was able to get a good look at the object and stated that it was 75 feet across and looked like two bowls clamped together into one object. As you can tell, we get similar reports over and over again here. There was green light at the saucer's edge and from a rotating light on top of the dome. He could see several apertures on the sides of it as well. Again, this object changed from green to white and shot off to the northwest, trailing exhaust and flames. On October 13th, a CNR train crew was followed closely by a UFO. The train operated by William Benwick was traveling near Alnora when a cone-shaped object approached his train, train 443, at around 1.50 a.m. The UFO followed just behind the train as it passed through Mirror, Alberta, and when the train stopped to at Alex to offload cargo, the UFO also stopped. Quote, The cone top was black in color, and a series of red, green, orange, and yellow lights flashed around the bottom rim. Underneath was a circle of glowing light, about 10 feet in diameter. The object itself was about the size of a freight car, 40 feet. As the train pulled into Mirror, Engineer Benwick got him outside to see the phenomenon. The station operator's only comment was, My God. The object hovered for two hours over Mirror before leaving. October 22nd seemed to culminate in a series of sightings across Canada in Alberta, Manitoba, and Saskatchewan. Between 7.45 and 8 p.m., two witnesses, six miles southwest of the town of Humboldt, Saskatchewan, quote, the object appeared as three lights, one being similar to a railroad flare. The lights moved, ripply, within themselves, but were fixed. They had a high frequency, or fast flicker. The edge of each light was diffused. All lights appeared to be four feet in diameter. The outer lights were orangish amber. The center light was brilliant red, railroad flare. This center light was similar to an inverted teardrop in shape. The center light moved up and down regularly. Three seconds go up, two seconds stopped at the top, three seconds go down, and two seconds extinguished. This light would reach a height of three to four times that of the side lights. The anonymous witnesses were collecting bales of straw at the time of their sighting from a field. At first they thought they were lights from a police vehicle, but after watching them for five minutes or so, decided to investigate. 
Quote, when the truck turned south at the intersection, the lights were no longer visible. Mr. Solar stopped the truck, then proceeded at approximately 10 miles per hour. As the truck moved down the road, passing the estimated position of the light, S got the impression, felt queer sensation, that he was driving under something. After driving about three car lengths past the estimated position of the lights, F turned around and looked out the rear window, seeing the lights. S looked in the rearview mirror and saw the lights descend to the road's surface. The outer lights seemed to be about three feet above the road. The lights followed the truck, maintaining a distance of approximately three car lengths. S continued driving about 25 miles per hour to a crossroad where he made a U-turn. The lights reversed direction with the truck in pursuit. S drove at 40 to 50 miles per hour, but could not catch up to the lights. He could not approach closer than one half block. As he pursued the lights, S noticed that the object did not leave a dust trail on the dirt road. When they were about one quarter mile from the intersection, the lights skidded sharply to the left about 150 feet into the open field opposite the trees and bushes at the intersection. The lights went out. S stopped the truck, then drove fast to the intersection, turned left, then drove west at about 60 miles per hour until they could see down the road for about a mile. They returned to the intersection, turned south, drove down the road again, turned around, drove north, stopping on a high spot on the road. From this position over a period of 15 to 20 minutes, several sparks jumped from scattered points on the field around them. Sparks were similar to fireworks. A light trail would start from about two feet above the ground, rise up, arch downward, and explode at one-third, that of the apogee. The light exploded with a burst of aluminum white sparks. They again saw some sparks on the left, west side of the road in the driveway. S quoted F with saying, just after seeing the latest sparks, that he saw a dark object without lights, the size of a railroad locomotive, moving north on the left side of the road. The lights appeared to occupy the full width of the road, about 20 feet. Two days later, four teenagers, Glenn Butts, Terry McFadson, Linda Williams, and Kathy Bowman were driving on a country road two miles south of Lumsden when an object caught the driver's attention. Jokes were passed along, thinking that the moon was a flying saucer, but it turns out it was the real deal. They described the object as about 40 feet wide, 10 feet high, and lens-shaped, such as two saucers joined lip to lip. The color was described as brilliant red, with a darker red or black band across the center. No other light or color was observed at this time. Badly frightened, they accelerated their auto northward to the town of Lumsden, at which time the object moved eastward at an ambling pace and disappeared into a wide wooded ravine approximately one mile east of their point of observation. They immediately went to the office of RCMP Corporal Parsons, where they were interviewed and where Cadet Ferguson was dispatched to the area. He reportedly saw a Quote, brilliant red light to the southeast of him, approximately halfway to the city of Regina. The red light bore white lights along 
the widest part flashing off and on simultaneously at one-second intervals, end quote. As we turn to eastern Canada, humanoid sightings were not unheard of, though they will feature heavily in the next episode. On June 13th in Ontario, quote, At about 2.30 a.m. on Tuesday, June 13th, 1967, Carmen Cuneo, a mine worker at Caledonia, Ontario, Canada, stepped outside briefly and saw something he had never seen before and doubts if he will see anything like it again. In the vicinity of the lower part of the mine dump, by a pond, he saw two strange-looking crafts. One appeared to be about 36 feet long, was cigar-shaped, and had four small, evenly-spaced windows along the side facing Cuneo. What appeared to be a boom-like aerial protruded from one end of the object. The other object was saucer, or disc-shaped, about 15 feet in diameter, both objects were suspended in the air about 12 feet above the ground. The most surprising thing, however, was the presence of three small men wearing hats, similar to those worn by miners, who were moving about under the boom of the cigar-shaped object. On top of each of the helmets were four small amber lights. Cuneo stood and watched in fascination for about 10 minutes. He had no doubt that he was seeing something solid, but felt he should get someone to verify his experience. So he went inside and called his friend, Merv Hannigan, who came outside with him. When they returned, the little men had disappeared into the ship, but both Cuneo and Hannigan watched the two objects, which continued to hover in the same spot until about 3.05 a.m. The men watched the sight in the company of each other for a total of 20 minutes. At 3.05, the two objects took off towards the southwest, many colored lights in evidence. They made no noise in taking off, and no sound was heard during their presence prior to takeoff. After dawn came, Cuneo went to the area to investigate and found a large gouge in the ground and an oily residue on the burdock leaves. The oil was analyzed but was not found to be of any ordinary type. End quote. On June 18th, a family returning to Clearwater Bay in Ontario approached an object in their boat. The object took an interest in them and pursued their boat, making multiple passes at it. The Toronto Telegram carried a report in their August 23rd, 1967 edition featuring a Toronto man named Stanley Moxon. He appeared at the Smith Falls Police Station that morning with a weird experience to tell. Just past the town of Joyceville, he had seen a green light in a field to his right. Deciding that it was worth checking out, he turned off his lights and veered right onto a side road. When he was close to the lights, he decided to turn on his headlights again, and when he did so, he saw a huge saucer-shaped object resembling two plates slammed together. Outside the object were two figures in white uniforms and helmets. The figures were about four feet tall, and as soon as the lights struck them, they almost flew inside the object. The craft rose off the ground without a sound to fly away at high speed and disappear into the night sky. To highlight our final region, we take a trip on the Alaska Highway. This report comes from the Fort Nelson News. Flabbergasted. 
dumbfounded, almost hypnotized by the light, chills up and down my spine, feeling like a porcupine looks. These were all the expressions used by Ed Yemitsky as he told us of his mystifying experience the other night. He and Jim Marshall were driving north between 10 and 11 p.m. Saturday, March 4th. On Steamboat Mountain at mile 368 on the Alaska Highway, they suddenly saw a great yellowish-white light ahead and quite high. Like the glare from an arc welder, the light was so intense that they frequently had to turn their eyes away. Suddenly it disappeared and they continued northward, somewhat shaken. Just past the camp at Summit Lake, the object appeared once again across the lake and to their left. Ed describes its position thus, quote, I could see it at a point in the windshield, about two inches below the highest spot that the wipers cover, end quote. It hovered for ten minutes, then zoomed downwards about six inches on the windshield, then moved horizontally to the left and seemed to land on the side of Subit Mountain at a point slightly higher than the microwave site. Both men described the object as radiating light as the sun would do. Both also saw a red light, although it was still impossible to gaze for long. Jim tells of stopping a car, a Cadillac with American plates, and in the excitement scaring the driver who thought he must be in for highway robbery. However, the two occupants of the car also watched the bright light and agreed they had never before seen anything like it. After watching for an hour and a half, the two Fort Nelson men drove on to mile 408 and told their story to Mr. and Mrs. Les Freeman of the Circle T Ranch. Ed says they were not surprised and they told of a similar sighting on Flat Top Mountain in the area. Another report came from a Fort Nelson couple traveling by truck on the Kochko Lake Road from Cascade Rig No. 2 on Saturday night at about 10.30 p.m. They saw at first what appeared to be a rig away in the trees ahead of them. Three lights in a triangular formation of red-green color hung motionless, apparently in the trees. They approached and passed under the object, which remained stationary at the time. The husband was skeptical and said it was an aircraft, but the wife reported to the news that she particularly noticed there wasn't a white light, which is necessary on an aircraft. We, news reporters Lloyd Archuk and Jim Harold, had worked all day on the UFO story and were waiting for Jim Marshall to come for a photograph when at 9.30 p.m. he walked in. Come and look at this, he said. Oh no, not a flying saucer we cried in unison. No, I'm serious. So we went to the door and looked out. Sure enough, there it was. It hung over the horizon in the steamboat mountain direction. When we first watched it, it was motionless and a deep orange, rather unexciting. Then it began to change color and turn from orange to red and green, the whole appearing to move on an axis, and slowly it traveled in a downward curve to the right until it disappeared from our view, although the chapels at mile 308 watched it for a further 15 minutes or so. We reported it to the RCMP, who sent an observer, and there were about seven other people watching it with us. The CNT microwave chief engineer reported no deterioration or interruptions of any kind during the week. So it's something of a mystery still. 
Although explanations range from it being a weather satellite to you should take more water with it. Here again, we have striking similarity of detail to two other cases we have written or read about. In issue number two, we reported a sighting by Darwin Bjornsson of Parksville in southern BC. This occurred in June 1967. Note that same eventful year. And these were Bjornsson's words. It was an incredible sight. For a few minutes, the ball of light just hung there, and then it started to move slowly to the left, and as it moved, it seemed to start rotating. The colors changed like a colored beach ball going around. They were mostly green, blue, and reddish. Then it would stop, and just one color would be showing. And that is a small portion of what Canada experienced in 1967. The year it was invaded without knowing. In our next episode, we will be talking about the Canadian Year of the Humanoids, 1968. You can find the Our Strange Skies podcast on most podcasting apps. If you want to follow us on social media, buy some merch, or find the link to our Patreon page, head on over to OurStrangeSkies.com. I have a P.O. Box if you want to send me stuff. It's P.O. Box 1377, Tupper Lake, New York, 12986. You can check out Welcome UFO People, the webcomic that Todd Purse and I make, on Instagram at Welcome UFO People and Twitter at Welcome UFO Peeps. We also have high-res images available on each of our Patreon pages, and we're going to be doing a limited print run of our first five comics, so... um. Stay tuned for that. Our Strange Skies is a production of Duvid Media. Special thanks to Floats for the use of their song UFO as the theme for this podcast. Spencer Worth Davis is the man behind the curtain. Our logo was designed by Megan Lagerberg, and the great Desdemona is behind many of our t-shirt designs. And finally, don't forget to look up, because you never know what you'll find in Our Strange Skies or hanging out over the Big G Guest Ranch in Lone Butte. In gray, we trust. Yeah.